Well, good morning. I'm Chris Cobble. I'm the associate pastor here at Dina Church, and we are glad you're here to worship with us, to be encouraged and challenged by God's Word. Uh, Mike reached out to me last night and asked me for a title for the sermon, and I said, do not be anxious. Creative, right? He said, sir, we've come to expect a fair amount of alliteration. So I kind of threw out a joke. I said, what about the withering, wilting worthlessness of worry? And he ran with it. So I woke up in terror this morning thinking, I don't need to be titling sermons. Last summer, I started having some pain in my neck. At first, it started out, it wasn't anything new. I, since high school, have had occasional tightness in my neck and neck aches and stiff necks. But this was different. Uh, it started as a stiff neck, but pretty soon, any time I sat down, I had a radiating pain like a nerve across my back, up in my neck, that, that caused the entire back of my head to feel like it was just being crushed. And it was especially painful when I would sit down. By God's grace, I could lay down flat, I could sleep, and I could stand up. But any time I tried to sit down, the pain was excruciating. And days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into a couple of months. And this was pain that was affecting my daily life. I was scheduled to go on a backpacking trip in Colorado with a group of, of, of friends and pastors. And I had to back out because there was no way I could carry a heavy backpack and sleep on the ground. That You know, when you go to the doctor, they ask you, does this pain affect your daily life? I think it was the first time that I had to check yes to that, that, that this was excruciating pain at times. And, and I began to wonder if it would ever end. I could take aspirin and Tylenol and ibuprofen and I could numb the pain a little bit just to get by. But it was affecting everything about my life. So finally, after a couple months, I gave in to the advice my wife gave me in about day two. <laughs> and I went to a, to a therapist, to a doctor. And I described the situation to him. I was walking through this weird pain, this radiating nerve shooting pain. And I was certain that he was about to submit me for a study like, sir, I've never heard of this kind of pain before. It's totally unique to you. There's nothing we can do. But instead of that, he looked at me. He said, I want you to sit up straight. I want you to stick your chest out, and I want you to pull your shoulders back, tuck your chin. And I did it. He said, symptoms are gone, right? I just about came out of the chair. He was right. I felt no pain in my neck when I sat like that. You see, I was convinced I had a problem in my neck, but, but the doctor explained to me that the neck was just the, simple, the symptom. The problem was my shoulders. The problem was my posture. That that pain in my shoulders, was a, in my neck, was a symptom of a bigger problem. I was focused on the symptom, wondering if I was going to have to have neck surgery. But the doctor understood clearly that that symptom pointed to something else. And in our text today, Jesus is going to talk about worry. He's going to talk about anxiety. But as we work through this text, what we're going to see is that Anxiety is a symptom of a deeper problem. That, that this text, in a lot of ways, functions as a symptom checker. 
You guys know that, right? That when you start experiencing something, you go online, you put in your three symptoms, and it inevitably gives you the worst case scenario you can even imagine. But this text, in a lot of ways, is a symptom checker of, of John's message from last week. Last week, John talked about a choice that we have to make. That are we going to serve God for eternal treasure, or are we going to serve mammon for temporary or earthly wealth. Today, Jesus' words are going to help us examine which of those two things we're following, which of those two things are our priority. You know, our culture talks a lot about anxiety. According to the National Institute of Health, one in five adults has experienced an anxiety disorder in the past year. The number grows with adolescents. 32% of adolescents are diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. In one Barna study, uh, research, they were, they were doing this study called the Connected Generation, and they found that 49%, half of 18 to 35-year-olds, expressed anxiety over important decisions they had to make, that they were afraid to fail. You guys can relate to that, right? What if I do this? What if I do that? This ceaseless, overwhelming analysis of the decisions we make, of the things we pursue, the things we do. We worry about our finances, everything from our short-term finances to my retirement account, to the size of my retirement account. Do I have it in the right place? We are preoccupied with how do we get the next thing, the next phone, the next car the next home, the next gadget or device. And then we worry about how do we get the best deal on that widget that we're looking for. We worry about our kids, their jobs, their future, their safety, the decisions they're making, their spouses. Will they be cared for? We worry about how we look, what we wear, how much weight we've gained, how well we're aging, our health. We worry about our image, what people think about us, how we compare to others. We worry about our future, the news cycle, politics. For some of you, yesterday's election day weighs heavy on you. We worry about our comfort. Will I be able to be comfortable in the future? A lot of you are worried about the future, what you might lose, who you might lose. I have to fight my thoughts every time a loved one gets in a car and drives away from the house, just for a momentary flash. I have anxiety. Now you guys are worried about a whole new bunch of things because I just gave you a long list. <laughs> but the reality is we are prone to worry. Some of these worries are imaginary. Many of them aren't. As Jesse prayed, we live in a world where there are real tragedies. There is real pain. There is real loss. There is real suffering. There is real struggle. So this text today is going to help us through that. And, and you know, the, the thing about it is our culture feeds this anxiety. It's from social media to the 24-hour news cycle. Man, it's in front of us all the time. If you don't have enough to worry about, just go online. Just look at the television. 
It's designed to make us worried, to make us compare ourselves to other. Maybe I don't shape up. But all of it tends to make us preoccupied with ourselves and what's in front of us. But today's text is here to help us, to point us away from our small-minded view of the world to something far greater. In this passage, Jesus instructs His believers not to be anxious, but instead to trust Him, to seek first His kingdom. And He's going to have three primary reasons for doing that. First, He's going to say, because you can trust Me. Because you can trust your Father. Second, because it doesn't do any good anyway. That there's nothing you can do to fix this situation in your worrying. And then third, He's going to let us know that worry leads to a self-focused life. But Jesus is not going to stop simply with a prohibition. He's going to give us an alternative. He's going to give us a remedy. He, he's not going to give us as much aspirin as I took. That aspirin didn't solve anything with my neck. And Jesus is going to redirect us away from simply killing this symptom, from killing this anxiety, and He's going to point us to a remedy. He's going to call for a change in our priorities. Ask us for change in our heart. Let's look at the text. Starting in verse 25, Jesus says, For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He starts with a connective for this reason or, or therefore. It's, it's a connection. It ties to the text of last week's sermon. You can't serve two masters. Therefore, don't be worried about your life. Don't be worried about the temporary. Don't be worried about the here and now. The idea of worry is it's, it's anxious. It's, it's a mental anxiety. The ESV calls it anxiety. That it's a mental anxiety, a worry, a striving. It's the idea of being preoccupied by. We're talking about that fearful feeling that you and I get when we sense a threat. And it causes us, it, it might cause us to have a simply a mental response, an awareness of something that's happening. It may cause us to have an emotional response where we feel this anxiety. And in many cases, it even produces a physical response. When we're anxious, our heart rate increases. We get that feeling like I want to crawl out of my skin. I don't want to eat. I'm nervous. I can't sleep. It keeps me awake at night. It's not that Jesus is saying have no concern. No, the King James translation is, is sort of a mistranslation. The King James says take no thought about your life. And that's a mistranslation. Jesus is not saying, you know, we, we plan for the future. We're good stewards in managing all the resource that God's given us. So He's not asking us to be aloof or to be distant from our life. He's simply asking us or commanding us not to be anxious about it, not to let us preoccupy us. Because here's the thing, worry exposes what we worship. A friend of mine who's a counselor says, we worship what we fear and we fear what we worship. 
Anxiety is this long-term sense of fear that we feel when we're threatened. And like I said earlier, sometimes it's a real threat. Sometimes it's an imagined threat. But either way, we have those symptoms that, that we would say that, that our fear exposes what we most value. That if you're a person who values comfort, then a lot of your anxieties are going to be a things about your home, uh, your income. What if I lose my job? What if I take this stand and something happens? If you tend to worry about the future, uh, that, that you'll try to constantly be manipulating or, or controlling things. If you're worried about your influence, if, you, if, you're, if your chief priority is your influence, then suddenly you worry about what people think about you or how you perform. Did I live up to their expectations? You see, worry shows what it is that we actually value in our heart. That if I actually value these temporary things, then I'm going to worry about the things that keep those things. Jesus goes on, he says, about your, don't worry about your life to what you will eat or what you will drink or to your body for what you will put on. Jesus is addressing practical needs. You know, our definition of need certainly is different than the first century in the people that Jesus spoke to. Uh, that idea of, of need has expanded a bit as we live in a land of prosperity, that, that we need a big house, we need a nice car, we need a vacation. But we have to recognize that you and I have no reason to complain if all He does and meet our basic need. That that's what God is committing Himself to, that He will care for your basic physical needs. Anything else is gravy, it's blessing. It's an opportunity for you to bless others. He doesn't owe us all that our culture has demanded or encouraged us to expect. Jesus says, is life not more than food? Is the body not more than clothing? Believe it or not, in Jesus' time, clothing was considered more value than to us today. Because clothing was passed down from, from mother to daughter, from father to son. There was a preciousness to clothing. And, and Jesus is saying, look, God has given you life. You can trust Him to sustain it. The God who is the creator of life can certainly be trusted with this lesser thing of providing food. The God who is the creator of your body can certainly be trusted to clothe it. I mean, think about that. The complexity of the human body, that He made our human bodies, and we worry about whether or not He can give us fabric to cover ourselves. It's, it's astounding that we wrestle with this, but we do. Jesus goes on in verse 26, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they are? Jesus says, look to the birds. He's giving an object lesson. He's pointing to something in creation that we can relate to. And He's saying, this will instruct you as to who I am. I think of Romans 1, 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature has been clearly seen, 
being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. God has demonstrated us His eternal power, His divine nature. We see it in creation. It speaks of His sovereignty. It speaks of His power. It speaks of His creativity. Look around. We learn about God's care just by looking out these windows and seeing all that He's done. He has the ability to take care of us. You know, the lesson here isn't don't work. It's not to be lazy. Birds are tireless in their fluttering around and connecting food or collecting food and building their nests. They're always gathering. They're always caring for. So God doesn't tell us, hey, be lazy, sit back. But, but just, just like the birds that we in our nature need to trust Him to provide, that the birds trust God implicitly, that He'll provide for them. They don't question. They just go collect. It makes me think of the, the disciples' prayer. Give us this day our daily bread, that there's a simple understanding a simple trust that God calls us back to. We have a tendency to complicate things, don't we? Give us this day our daily bread. That's all I really need, God. Take care of me like you take care of the birds. And then notice also, he says, your heavenly Father. He doesn't say the bird's heavenly Father. He says, your heavenly Father. If God cares enough about the birds, how much more does He care about His children? He is our Father committed to provide for us that we are far more valuable, Jesus says, than birds. You know, in Luke, Luke records this more specifically when he says, look at the ravens. Ravens are unclean birds. So, so the contrast even goes out farther to say, if God cares enough to take care of unclean birds... How much more will He take care of you, His children? If God cares for rattlesnakes and cockroaches, surely we as His children can trust that He knows we need and He cares for us. Verse 27, He gives a second reason not to be anxious. Who of you by being worried can add a single hour to His life? It's a rhetorical question. It's obvious. What does anxiety produce? The things that are going to happen are going to happen. That we trust God's sovereignty. My worrying doesn't solve anything. Can you increase your life at all? Jesus says, even a minuscule amount? No, not at all. We even understand now in, in our modern world that anxiety is actually counterproductive, that, that we see studies now that show anxiety actually has the potential to shorten your life. So not only does worry not help, it actually hurts. It's, it's useless. It's worthless. Verse 28, he goes back to our needs. He says, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Jesus says, observe. Look carefully. A again, it's, it's an object lesson, but, it, but it's a discipline we ought to consistently 
consider is, is learn, observe, look. Look at the lilies of the field. More likely that the term used here is, is talking more generally about wildflowers as opposed to one specific plant. But he says they don't toil. To toil is to labor, to work, to effort. It's a wearisome idea. Nor spin, as in spinning cloth. You know, it's interesting. Jesus, he points to men's labor in the field and women's labor in the home. And again, he's not talking about not doing work. He's talking about the emphasis, the, 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 the priority we place on it, the idea of working toward weariness. Look at the wildflowers. They don't labor or toll. You know, our youngest is in sixth grade this year, and she just finished up her Texas wildflower project. Hopefully our last child that will have to do one of those <laughs> wildflower projects. And while most of us as parents dread that time of year to collect the flowers, to help collect the flowers, the, the heart behind that project is wonderful to look at these flowers that God has created, the intent and purpose of this project, to see all that God has done. Blue bonnets, Indian paintbrushes, Indian blankets, Mexican hats, evening primrose, even the purple bud on the top of the thistle is beautiful. Jesus says, not even Solomon in all of his glory could be clothed like one of these. Talking about Solomon's glory, I wanted to read a, a little bit of a lengthy passage just so you could get a feel for Solomon's wealth. In 2 Chronicles 9, starting in verse 17, talking about Solomon, it says, The king made a great throne, inlaid with ivory, overlaid with pure gold. The throne had six steps and a footstool of gold was attached to it. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on six steps at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. The king had a fleet of trading ships manned by Hiram's men. Once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. All the kings of the earth sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold and robes and weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, 12,000 horses which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. He ruled over all the kings of the river and the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from all the other countries. 
Guys, that's wealth we can't even fathom. We can't even imagine. There is no lack. There is no need. Solomon had it all. And yet the man that owned all this was unable to clothe himself as radiantly as the wildflowers that grow natural, cultivated by God. Not only does God care for us, but He cares for us with gusto. He delights in us. He loves us. The wildflowers have a splendor that we can't recreate. We can trust God. Jesus goes on in verse 30. He says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will He not much more clothe you, you of little faith? He moves from flowers to the grass, alive today and thrown into the furnace. The grass was commonly used for cooking. We would collect it and burn it under the under the cook, under the, under the food to cook it. And so if God cares something so much about something of that little value, if He cares for grass that's used for fuel, how much more does He care about us? How much more does He care for you and for me? He says, you of little faith. He's not saying that they have no faith, but that their faith is deficient. Faith brings about change. Faith brings about action. Faith produces fruit. Your anxiety is evidence of your lack of trust. If you believe, if you truly believe that God can do this, if we truly in our hearts believe that God can care for us and we truly trust Him, then anxiety is actually illogical. It doesn't make sense. Verse 31, do not worry then saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Verse 31, he repeats this command and it's sort of a bracket to what he said earlier that, that we don't worry because God can care for us and we don't worry because it no, does no good. And now in verse 32, he's going to point to a contrast. And this contrast is pretty convicting as we read through it. It's a sort of, by the way, this is what you look like when you worry. The Gentiles, ethne is the word, it's the word we use for nations. It's, it's the idea that these are the non-Jewish people, those who don't believe in God, that don't worship in God. To these people... The world is all there is. All there is. What you see in front of you is it. In a lot of ways, it's like our modern secular culture. That, that you only live once. Grab life for all the gusto. If you lose now, it's over. That there's an urgency when you live for just this world. That we're preoccupied in keeping and holding on to things without any sort of eternal perspective, without any understanding that God can take care of us because what we see in front of us is all there is. They don't know God, so they don't trust God. 
They don't believe in God, so this world is all there is. It, it leads to a frantic life, a searching and building and worrying, worrying obsessed with the economy and politics and comparisons and fitness, having the latest thing, because to them, that's all there is. A great fear of loss. And, and you know, those things in and of themselves aren't the problem. That it's completely appropriate for us to be concerned about the economy, to be concerned about the political situation, to be concerned about what kind of world our kids are going to grow up in, to be concerned about decisions that our leaders are making and, and the kind of world that we're moving toward. It's appropriate for us to, to think and to pray and to worry about those things. But it's a question of anxiety, it's a question of our heart. For non-believers, this is all they have. They're not worried about the spiritual impact. They're not worried about spiritual growth. They're not worried about the kingdom. They're only worried about holding on to what they got. And here's the thing, in pointing out the Gentiles, he's not saying that as Christians we don't struggle. He's just saying this is not a characteristic of a believer. You and I struggle, but it's a struggle. It's not a characteristic of who we are. Because when we are caught up in those things like the Gentiles, when we're obsessed with those things, that is incredibly fertile soil for anxiety. This gives anxiety its opportunity when we're focused on the temporary that we get caught up in these things and we fret, we worry. But fortunately, Jesus is going to move on to remedy. You know, he, he doesn't just say, don't be anxious. He doesn't just say, don't worry. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. This is our path. This is our alternative. We're, Jesus doesn't just leave us with, hey, don't worry. Hey, stop it. He paints a picture of why we shouldn't worry, but then he actually flips it in a positive direction of where we do spend our time. That, that we stop pursuing temporal things and we store up heavenly treasures as we looked at last week. We pursue God Seek first His kingdom. We obey God. We tell others about God. We promote righteousness. We live in a way that we store up treasures in heaven. And this is an active choice you and I have to make every day. This isn't something that we check the box and then we just automatically do it. We have to inventory constantly. I have to constantly inventory my priorities to say, why is it I'm concerned about this thing? Or am I pursuing the kingdom of God in my daily life? We have to examine our hearts, our intention. You know, that's the thing about this, this entire Sermon on the Mount. I was talking to John this week and I was like, I feel like for the rest of our lives, we could just recycle through this sermon and have plenty of material to walk with God. That the thing about the Sermon on the Mount is it gets in here. It penetrates our heart. Jesus is not commanding us how to get all these external things right. He wants your heart. Seek after His kingdom 
and His righteousness. Don't just avoid worry. Don't just externally look like you have it together. Internally, in your motivations, are you seeking the kingdom of God? What are you afraid of losing? What are you holding back from God? What are the areas that we are seeking our own kingdom, that we're seeking our earthly treasure, that we're seeking our own desires? Because here's the thing about us. We're going to pursue something. It's not like we can turn off our pursuit meter. We are designed to worship. We're always worshiping something. The question is, what am I worshiping? What am I pursuing? There is no neutral. We're either pursuing God's kingdom or we're pursuing our own kingdom, our own ways. And, and when we pursue our own selfish needs, Anxiety is the symptom that continually flashes. Say, what are you doing? He says, all these things, when we seek His kingdom, all these things will be added. But wait, there are Christians who have starved. There are Christians who have died of exposure. Is this text just for the future? Is, is Jesus only talking about heaven? I don't think so, because in the next passage, he's going to say, don't worry about today. Jesus is focused on the here and now. The next, ultimately, I think what we see is that, yes, in a sense, he will ultimately fulfill this in the future. But today, in the here and now, in Luke chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Make yourselves money belts that don't wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven. Sounds like last week, eternal treasure. Sell your things, give to the needy, and build up eternal treasure where there's no thief that comes or no moth destroys. In Mark 10, verses 29 and 30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house and brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in this present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. That when we seek his kingdom, that we give, that we seek his kingdom. There's an eternal fruit, the eternal treasure we talked about last week, but even in the here and now, what would happen if we live in a community that seeks God's priorities first, by very definition, we take care of each other's needs. You know, God often works through very natural and normal means. When we say, God delivered me, God helped me, God provided for me, there's usually a person's name on the other side of that in how God took care of this thing or that thing. That God works through normal means, through people. And I think when all these things are to be added, what would happen if we put other needs first? What happens to our church when we consider the blessings that God has given us as a church and we seek first His kingdom? That we would counter this individualistic culture looking out for number one, that we counter the culture that says, get yours first. 
when we consider the needs of others more important than our own, we impact the community around us. That in seeking first the kingdom, we actually consider what Jesus would do with our priorities. And when we do that, we're not consumed with worries. When I seek first God's kingdom with my priorities, with my obedience, with my giving, with my heart, what drives me? Is it the kingdom of God? Jesus goes on in verse 34. He says, so don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Every day has enough trouble of its own. You know, we have plenty to concern ourselves with what's in front of us today. And in front of us, I mean in your life, in my life, that, that we worry, we're so prone to worry about things that will never pass. But we need to recognize that God can handle it. You know, in the modern day, we're bombarded with news. Things that we can't even necessarily act on. The, the news has almost become a form of entertainment to us. That we fill ourselves, our minds with, with tragic stories and things that we can't do anything about. You know, when, the, when television was starting to be in everyone's home and the evening news started being a part of life, uh, Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he said, and he was talking about just the way that we are consuming information and how it's radically changing. He said, there's no murder so brutal, no earthquake so devastating, no political blunder so costly for that matter, no ball score so tantalizing or weather report so threatening that it cannot be erased from our minds by a newscaster saying, now this, and then a move to a Taco Bell commercial. And he's talking about the trivial way we look at the world around us. That, that he coined a term liar for low information to action ratio. That, that the amount of information we have to the amount of action that we can do about it is way out of proportion. That ratio is out of whack. So that we're constantly hearing about poverty uh, in a general sense. That we're constantly hearing about famine and earthquakes. And, and all that information that we just take in, that we don't do anything about, produces just a low-grade anxiety that's always there. That we're stressed about things that we actually don't have any way to input to. And, and that was in the 1980s. We've come a long way, baby. With social media, constant inputs, breaking news. I have, to, I have to turn that stuff off because it just, it builds in me just a low-grade anxiety of things. And so while Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, I think what he's emphasizing is focus on what's right here in front of you. That I can be so distracted by the world and, and that world is producing an anxiety that I can't actually act upon, that I'm actually overlooking things that I can do something about. Be faithful 
to what's in front of you, what Jesus is saying. Corey Tenboom said, worry doesn't empty tomorrow of sorrows. It empties today of strength. I think when we borrow trouble, as my grandma used to say, that it tends to distract us. And, and sometimes, I mean, I mean, I can even be proud of myself sometimes that I know things that are happening, right? That I know first about this earthquake that's happening in the other side of the world. That I can sort of almost pat myself on the back for knowing something about it. And here I'm sitting here not doing a thing about it. Nor do I have the opportunity to do something about it. All the while overlooking the needs in my family, overlooking the needs in my community, overlooking the people who are in my life on a daily basis, the person sitting across the table from me that needs help, that I've made myself feel good about this thing that I can't do anything about, to the neglect of the thing that I can actually do something about. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will have enough concerns of its own. There was an English executive, J. Arthur Rank, who decided to do all his worrying one day a week. <laughs> so when anything happened that, that caused him anxiety or aggravated his ulcer, he would write it down on a piece of paper and he put it in his Wednesday box. The interesting thing was every time the following Wednesday came around when he opened his worry box, he saw that most of the things that had dis been disturbing him over the past six days had resolved themselves, that he would have wasted his time. It would have been worthless for him to worry about these things. The Essenes were a, a separatist group. Uh, uh, they were um, a, a separatist sect of Judaism. And, and the Essenes had a law that forbade talking about the following day's work on the Sabbath. That we're, not, that we're on the Sabbath, we're focusing on God, we're not going to worry about tomorrow's work. But as he's done with so many of the other sects, I think Jesus raises the bar. Don't worry about tomorrow on the Sabbath. He says, don't worry about tomorrow at all. And here's the thing. It, there's a rebuking element to it because as humans, we tend to be sinful and we tend to focus on ourselves. But more than that, he's saying, because I've got it. I know. I care. He's actually calling you and I. It's, it's not so much an angry rebuke as a welcoming invitation. Jesus offers us rest. He wants us to put these worries on Him. Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is calling us to something far better than our worry, than our anxiety. I know some of you are sitting here today and you're saying, wait, Chris, you don't understand. I've been dealing with anxiety for weeks, for months, for years. I've dealt with anxiety for the last 5, 10, 20 years. This text, it's way too easy. But I want to challenge that. And I want to say, Jesus is not giving us some Pollyanna, pie in the sky, be positive message in this text. He's, he's pushing 
inward on our heart. He's asking, do we trust him? Will we trust him? Will I trust him enough to make his priorities my priorities and let him be care of the, take care of the outcome? Will I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? You know, a lot of times we get simple and easy confused. To say something is simple is to say that it's not complicated. And I think as we look at this text this morning, we would all have to agree this is simple, right? Don't be anxious because God can take care of you. Don't be anxious because it doesn't produce anything. And don't be anxious because it produces a frantic lifestyle like the nation's. But instead, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and trust Him with the outcome. That's simple. I think we could walk right down the way and teach this to the third graders and they would have no problem giving us the big idea. But just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. It's difficult. It's challenging. We have to walk by faith to apply this message. He's offering to lift the load, but we have to be willing to change. Jesus is our good shepherd, but we have to be willing to let him lead us. You know, here's the thing about my neck pain. That one visit with the doctor didn't fix it. I still feel twinges of this same neck pain on a regular basis. I feel the pain notice, and, and guess what happens? As soon as I feel that pain, I sit up straight and I pull my shoulders back. I still have to do regular exercises to strengthen these muscles that had shrunk down and, and the back muscles that were constantly living in spasm and pulling my spine and, and making that nerve pain. There was a physiological thing that's happening that has to be changed over time. You know, I, I didn't get this pain overnight. It was, it was 20 years of sitting at a desk like this. You don't reverse that with one treatment. That it's a slow, as each day passes, I become more aware of what's causing that pain. And I start to develop new habits. Sometimes I actually sit at my desk and I'll sit like this to begin with instead of waiting till the pain subsides. That it's been a slow growth process. And I think this is what it's like for us to seek the kingdom. Some of you have long-term patterns, long-term habits of anxiety, long-term concerns. Some are legit, some are not. You've built and you've accumulated this way of thinking. You've, so others of you are, are, are seeking earthly things or you're worried about earthly things and you've built habits over years and years and years of those habits. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that we seek first his kingdom on a daily basis, worrying about today. You know, to ask yourself, what am I afraid of? What am I anxious about? What am I trying to control? What am I trying to protect? And then even something active like, what are areas that I've seen God provide for me? What are the things 
the, the clothing, the food that God's given us. Antonia and I, on a regular basis, we have a list of all the little things and all the big things that God has done that's in, that are inexplicable, ways that he's provided for us when we didn't deserve it or when we didn't have it. And, and, and it helps me to regularly think back through those things of all the ways God has provided for us. So maybe you need to make a list and then to ask the question from last week, am I pursuing eternal treasure or am I pursuing mammon and, and earthly gain? So that life for me to apply this passage really looks like a slow laying down of worries, a slow replacing of my priorities. And with each passing day, our priorities start to align more and more with His. Our symptom, the symptom of anxiety begins to diminish. And I actually experience the heart change that He wants to see. Let's pray. Lord, we hear these words. This is such a familiar passage. It's such a simple message. But God, our hearts are so prone to wander. Our hearts are so prone to worry, to be anxious. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room today that, 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 that we all struggle to some extent with anxiety. Would you bring us comfort and awareness as we struggle and help us to lay these burdens down. Help us to lay these anxieties aside and to fully trust you, to fully seek your kingdom and your righteousness, trusting you to provide for us. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.